This is an ABC podcast. Not even the beautiful Spanish language can make La Nina sound better to millions of Australians who've battled through two years of soaking rain. It's led to whole communities being flooded, livelihoods destroyed, and a bunch of plans ruined. And guess what? We're now in a third straight La Nina pattern. So what does this mean for our summer? G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for Hack. We've already seen a music festival cancel three months out on the back of this annoying weather news. Are others going to follow? We'll dig into this in a bit. Also, a missing con woman, a severed foot. We're going to get the lowdown on an inquest into the disappearance of Sydney fraudster Melissa Caddick. First, though. Hack, I will always support any effort to get more people, particularly more women, involved in politics. On Triple J. You know, there were a heap of messages that voters sent politicians at the federal election. One, they want more action on climate change. Another, women want to be heard. Surprise, hey. And a lot of women made that clear by not voting for the Liberal Party. The Young Liberals have already done a big review into this and it found that the party's failure to recruit, retain and promote women cost its support at the election. And now there are even bigger reviews happening into this. But while we wait for party officials to finish up all this soul-searching, one member of the Liberal Party's decided to take the matter into her own hands. She started an organisation to try and encourage women not to turn their backs on the party completely. Is it going to work? Maybe you're a woman Liberal voter that's abandoned the party. What do you think needs to happen? You can let us know. Message in 0439 First, here's our political reporter, Georgia Hitch, to explain. I really want to change the culture of the party and you cannot do that when the membership looks so different from the rest of society. Charlotte Motlock's worked in politics for years now, but after the most recent election and seeing how many women turned away from the Liberal Party, she decided she was going to do something different. So she set up Hilma's Network, named after Hilma Parks, an early suffragette in New South Wales. Charlotte describes the network as an organisation to connect young, liberal-minded women, including women who might have been so fed up with the party, they've turned away from it completely. When we talk about women in politics, everyone straight away talks about female candidates, and that is not my purpose. My focus with Hilma's network is purely on the membership. Charlotte's theory is that if the number of women in the Liberal Party increases, it'll have no choice but to listen to their views when it's deciding policies, and that that in turn is going to help recover some of the women it lost at the last vote. She says the network will hold regular, casual catch-ups where women will be asked how they feel about Liberal Party policies. And then she'll publish the feedback online regardless if it's good or bad. I spoke to her just after the network's first event earlier this month and asked how optimistic she is that her events will actually lead to people joining or re-engaging with the party. What has been really pleasing to me is to see the hundreds of women signing up to Hilma's network actually indicates that whilst there were a lot of women that didn't like the last government, they haven't turned their back on the party forever and they are willing to be part of the rebuild. One of those women is Katie McLaughlin. She's already a member of the Liberal Party but says the network gives an opportunity for her and other women to be involved without it being as intimidating as a normal party meeting. It's a forum that is much less scary, less, you know, intense, if you will. You know, you can go along, you don't have to put your name and all your details and, you know, sign up and pay a fee or anything like that. It's just see what you like talk to people, make your views heard, um, no obligation. 
But at the end of the day, unless the Liberal Party is on board, women could be shouting their views from the rooftop and it might not make a difference. Clark Cooley is the federal president of the Young Liberals. That group did a review after the election and found the Liberal Party is failing to attract and keep women, both as candidates and as members. He's all for Hillman's network and thinks that organisations outside the party can still have pretty big sway. The opportunities for external organisations to have an influence in politics is is huge and organisations, grassroots organisations like this really, really can make a difference. So what do the leaders of the Liberal Party have to say? Hack tried and tried to get the deputy leader of the party, Susan Lee, to talk about this, but weren't able to. Instead, she said in a statement that... I will always support any effort to get more people, particularly more women, involved in politics. And that... As deputy leader, I am working hard to demonstrate the Liberal Party reflects the values of Australian women, so that when they go to vote or seek to enter Parliament, we are their party of choice. She didn't answer whether Hilma's network was proof that the party had failed to make itself accessible to young women or whether it'll take the feedback that comes from the network on board. Now, if you're listening to this and are like, this is literally of no interest to me because I don't vote Liberal, well, Charlotte has a message for you. Even if you don't vote for the Liberal Party, you should still want the Liberal Party to be the best it can be because... We're now in opposition and good opposition makes good government and Australians deserve two really solid major parties. Hack on Triple J. Georgia Hitch with that story. We're hearing from you. Somebody says you could fill that place with women, but I think the reason why people turned away from the Liberals at the last election was the leader. Another person says it's scarcely believable the Liberal Party needed an inquiry in to work out why they'd alienated women. That's been clear to everyone except them. Well, let's look into that a bit more. Dr Maria Taflaga is a political scientist. She's the director of ANU's Centre for the Study of Australian Politics, and she's with us right now. G'day, Maria. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. A lot of people blame Scott Morrison for the Liberal Party's problem attracting and speaking to women. Is that fair or does the problem go back a lot further? Oh, no, the, the problem predates um, Scott Morrison and um, is a long-running issue for um, the Liberal Party. Um, and, and, you know, and to be blunt, um, it's a problem that all parties in Australian politics have sort of faced at one stage uh, or another. I guess this sort of origin point of problem within the Liberal Party, generates from the 1980s. It's kind of important for listeners, especially young ones, to kind of understand that, um, you know, before the 1980s, the Liberal Party actually used to be sort of like the champion for women's representation and actually did a lot better at it than the Labor Party, which might shock some um, some yeah. of your listeners uh, to know. But that, that transition happened in the 1980s and then really accelerated from the 2000s onwards. Well, I was going to ask, did other political parties have to deal with the same problem that the Liberal Party is dealing with now in terms of women? Oh, yes, and that's because politics is... um just traditionally um, kind of a, a masculine uh, field, like it was sort of controlled and set up by men and sort of suits their kind of rules. What we kind of consider to be a good candidate are often kind of what we would kind of call male-coded um, values. You know, we don't see too many 
you know, ex-childcare workers, for example, um, or aged care staff, right, who go into politics. It's, you know, lawyers who like arguing, uh, you know, people with a corporate law background or, you know, work in the unions or work in an industry group. Those are the sort of more typical professions that we sort of increasingly see people from politics um, go on to become elected. And so essentially what parties have kind of done to address this is the older ones have effectively that have been successful, i.e. Labor, and this goes for parties around the world um, in general, um, they've changed their rules in some way to shift the incentive structure to make it a little bit easier for women to kind of get in. Um, and younger parties tend to have a better culture in the first place because they're more modern, simply as that, and then when they set their rules up, um, all the types of people that they attract, they might just be more likely to produce more female candidates. So, you know, the Greens, the Democrats. So, in fact, minor parties in general tend to produce more female leaders and, broadly speaking, are more likely to be more gender equal. Well, interesting. And you were talking there about changing the rules slightly. And obviously, uh, we, you know, enter the conversation about quotas. And I'm wondering whether there does have to be structural changes to address the issue, because we've heard so much in the past leaders in the Liberal Party saying we don't need quotas, candidates should be pre-selected on merit alone. But it definitely works, right? When you look at the Labor Party and other parties, it's something that seems to work. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the basic straightforward answer is yes, um, that quotas do work. But the, the actual reason why they work is it's not because they're quotas. It's because they actually are structured in such a way that they shift the incentive structure within a political party or a, a political system. So, for example, there are countries overseas that have a legislated quota, so a quota that applies to the whole political system. And there you do see, you still see, left-wing parties generally perform better than right-wing counterparts. So there is a cultural dimension. People actually have to want to fulfil the quota. And the reason why Labor's quota is so successful, because it was not like... Um, you know, male factional power brokers from the 1980s were just happy to hand over power to women. That's not what happened at all. Um, you know, uh, women coordinated with uh, the left faction of the Labor Party to basically produce these rule changes, which do shift the incentive structure. And the way it works is essentially that if the quota isn't filled, then every contest in that category of seats, so safe seats, for example, is spilled and everyone must go through the contest again that's risky to a factional power broker. So it shifts the incentive. So they have, it's in their interest to see the quota is met. So their factional teammates' selections are not imperiled and they'll do, and they'll make deals with their factional counterparts to make sure that there are enough women fulfilling these roles. Interesting. And I'm also wondering, I mean, we just heard about these grassroots efforts to attract more women into the Liberal Party. Are they helpful as well? Yes, but it's actually not the first time this has been tried in the Liberal Party. I think this might be like the third or fourth that an initiative to bring, to give uh, women skills, right? You know, this is sort of a the kind of deficit model that there's something wrong with women. So let's give women skills or encouragement to kind of bring them into the party. Um, and it does work. It's not that it doesn't work, but it's really difficult to sustain. And so there is a sort of strength in the sense that this Hilmar Foundation seems to be sort of one step removed from the Liberal Party and potentially could um, kind of create a sort of its own kind of momentum and its own kind of universe um, separate from the Liberal Party, a bit like the way Labor's Emily's List is separate from Labor and is therefore able to kind of say uncomfortable things about Labor in a way that an 
intra-Labor Party, there is a women's network, you know, which doesn't do that kind of stuff. The the difficulty is, though, is whether or not you can actually maintain momentum. And it's all well and good for many women to join the Liberal Party, but if they still can't get pre-selected or they can't change the rules inside that party, and, you know, of course, each state has its own different rules, its own different constitution and its own politics. And in New South Wales, you know, there's a sort of a, you know, this, I think it's pretty clear these women already understand this right that it is heavily factionalized and so there are there are lots of challenges going on i mean i would be more confident that this is really going to work if it is also hand in hand with some form of organizational change which shifts the incentive structure in the liberal party in some way to be make it more favorable for women and after the election, we did hear a lot of debate about the future of the Liberal Party and, you know, predictions, oh, maybe the Liberal Party will move closer to the centre. I'm wondering if that is a potential solution as well. Like, this is a very general statement, but are young women less likely to get involved in really conservative politics? Uh, yeah, well, in a nutshell, demographically, probably. Uh, that said, though, you know, I mean, the people who kind of join um, parties are um, a pretty narrow group of Australians. You know, it's less than 1% of people that join parties. We know that the Victorian branch, for example, Australia's second largest state, the Liberal Party there is 12,000 people. So, um, you know, if we just adjust for population, the New South Wales Liberal Party may not be that much bigger. Parties are very secretive about the, the numbers. We only know that because of a, an audit around branch stacking there. So anything they can do to encourage genuine members and genuine interest, I think is actually really positive um, in terms of renewal for that party. But there are like sort of structural things that are that are important in the in the New South Wales branch. And they kind of relate to, you know, who is currently holding seats. And that is, um, and you know, they've lost a lot of moderates at the federal level. But of course, you know, m- there are many like there's still lots of seats at the state level, right? But it is sort of also important to kind of make a point that, like, there, there are also young conservative women out there who are probably heavily involved in New South Wales um, or Liberal Party politics. Um, that kind of makes sense. It is the centre-right party. You know, that's that's important for democracy too. Love your insights. As always, Dr Maria Taflaga from ANU's Centre for the Study of Australian Politics. Thanks very much for breaking all that down for us on Hack. My pleasure. Hack. On Triple J. And got a few messages coming through. Somebody says, I'm a female Liberal voter. I couldn't care less how many women are in the party. Hack. Explain to how we feeling. Just waiting for the TP for us to start because they cancelled the live shows. Triple La Nina. It is the news that nobody wants. Any cancellation is just a bit of another hit for regional areas that are already pretty exhausted. The three-day festival was meant to be held at Penny Royal Plains near Colac. Seeing the same thing down on the south coast of New South Wales too where there's been bushfires and then floods upon floods upon floods. I have never seen this much mud in my whole life. Local business owners say the decision to move the festival is another blow to regional Victoria. It's a really sad news for events generally and for the event industry going forward. We have a lot to owe to our gumboots. Costa, mate, if you're out there, you got to save us. Make this festival worth it. Make it better for us. You're a champion. On Triple Jack. Yeah, remember all that. You know, depending on where you are in the country will probably determine whether the term La Nina sends you into an emotional mess, right? You know La Nina, the weather phenomenon that's seen parts of Australia hit with two years of flooding rains. So when the Bureau of Meteorology this week confirmed, yep, we're in our third La Nina in a row, let's just say it's not what we wanted to hear as we get closer to summer. 
It doesn't matter if it doesn't mean we're sorry. Definitely going to see more floods, but there is a higher chance of rain. And with the ground already wet, creeks high, dams full, it's not great news. And so weather forecasters are warning us months out, which probably explains why we saw a music festival get in early yesterday and cancel. Festival of the Sun in New South Wales said the threat of atrocious and unpredictable weather this summer was too risky. So is this what we're in for? Are more festivals going to cancel? I'm wondering whether these weather predictions are enough to turn you off buying tickets, major outdoor events, festivals this summer. Let me know. You can message in 0439757555. Well, with us now is Mitch Wilson from the Australian Festival Association. Mitch, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me on the program, Dave. This La Nina confirmation, probably not what festival organisers were hoping to hear. No, definitely not. I don't think any of us wanted to hear after, yeah, the bushfires that we saw just before the pandemic, which affected a couple of festivals and then, yeah, two years of lockdowns and um, no mass gatherings. It's the last thing we wanted to hear, but I think um, festival organisers know how to pull together an event in (laughs) any circumstances, so... Um, we're probably best placed to face them. But um, no, definitely not what we were looking for. I mean, we've already seen Festival of the Sun call it. So are you worried other festivals might do the same thing? Uh, look, I think it it's definitely a consideration. Um, you know, our industry and my members just want to get out there and do what we do best, which is, you know, creating memorable experiences for people to go and see some music and enjoy time with their friends. But at the end of the day, putting on a festival is like a risky business and um, whether those organisers want to take on um, the risk that uh, is, you know, potentially increased because of this announcement from the Bureau of Meteorology, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if they, they took that into consideration. But I wouldn't say that we'll see a sort of large cancellation of festivals because of this. Right, okay. I mean, because the Splendour experience still really vivid in a lot of people's minds, right? And I imagine a heap of festivals don't want to go through the same thing. I mean, we've got some time. Do we need to be seeing more work to get sites ready now rather than waiting until the last minute? Oh, look, I think the... The Splendour experience was, yeah, obviously not not what we wanted to see. And I think the team had, were in a pretty uh, interesting spot with um, the rain that came, which is totally unprecedented. But I think what, what, what we want to do, what industry would like to do is really partner with government and, you know, pull in some climate scientists and really look at the potential for... Um, you know, the impact of climate change on some of the sites that we host events around our country and really sort of preempt it because I think this conversation's not going away and I think some of the areas where our events have been held in the past may not necessarily be appropriate given the sort of extreme weather events we're seeing. But the only way we're really going to do that is if we all sort of come together and work out where, what the impacts are. Yeah, and I, the- I think people would agree with that and say, yeah, well, maybe these um, places where we have held festivals, had festivals in the past, maybe it does need to change because in wet weather conditions, they're not coping. You are calling for more support from government, like a national insurance or interruption scheme. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so our members um, have seen 
exponential increases in their um, insurance premiums um, from both the pandemic but also because of these extreme weather events. And we really um, want to um, talk to government about uh, partnering on a sort of government-backed uh, insurance scheme or an interruption scheme uh, to support our members really come back. Now, the new Labor government um, in the lead-up to the election announced a national uh, interruption scheme, but it's really focused on sort of health impacts and pandemic-related sort of health orders, which as we're coming out of lockdowns, and I think we've seen some of our political leaders say they're probably not going to be putting bans on mass, mass gatherings in the future. So we would really love to expand that out to sort of, yeah, um, include some things like, you know, extreme weather events as well. And I mean, it's understandable a lot of people might be nervous now forking out for tickets to big events with the risk of bad weather, sending their plans into disarray, which is what we've seen over the past couple of years. How's the industry going to entice young people back to festivals? Because it's, it's going to be pretty hard, I'd think. Oh, I think, yeah, we're seeing really sort of um, soft ticket buying across the country, um, not only from young people, but particularly from young people. I think, you know, the impacts of homeschooling and just, you know, being in lockdown um, has made people nervous about going out to, to large events. But I guess... Um, my members really love putting on these um, events and they're sort of, you know, they're amending um, the times that they put on tickets uh, on sale and, you know, making sure that their lineups are, you know, the have got the artists that, that audiences are really into. So we're doing the best we can and I think you'll see um, uh, there has been some government support to sort of encourage these first level of events, but all we really want to do is say to young people out there, please buy tickets to our events. Please come along and hopefully, uh, <laughs> I can't predict the weather, but I, I can guarantee that it'll, it'll be a pretty memorable experience no matter no matter what the conditions. All right. We'll be keeping a close eye on this one as we head into the summer months. Mitch Wilson from the Australian Festival Association, really appreciate you talking with us on Hack. Thanks for having me. And we've got so many messages coming through. Someone says, as an event manager, I completely understand pulling the plug after the last couple of years. Festival organisers, many of our clients have lost enormous amounts of money. Getting staff is near impossible. And the threat of running at a loss could mean we don't see certain events happen ever again. And another person, AJ in Casino, says, hell devo about the weather and festival cancellations. Hack. The inquest will look into the disappearance of Melissa Caddick, her decomposed foot wash up on the south coast on triple j yeah it really is the stuff of movies which is probably no surprise that they've already made one about it a seemingly successful woman living the high life in one of australia's most prestigious postcodes is accused of ripping off friends and family of millions of dollars the investigation starts to heat up then she disappears leaving her husband and her whole life behind Months later, her foot washes up on a beach, but there's no body. Is she dead? Did she fake her death? What happened to Melissa Caddick? It's a wild ride. Well, an inquest that's just started in Sydney is hoping to figure out some answers. Let's hear how it's going. ABC Court reporter Jamie McKinnell's with us now. G'day, Jamie. Thanks for coming on, Hack. Hey, Dave. Firstly, a bit of a rundown. Who was Melissa Caddick? Well, Melissa Caddick disappeared in November 2020, and it came hours after the corporate watchdog ASIC 
raided her home in Dover Heights in Sydney's eastern suburbs. Now, there was an investigation at the time into a Ponzi scheme that Ms Caddick was allegedly running, and the court's been told the value of the alleged fraud she was responsible for was between 20 and $30 million. And we've been hearing in another court case that Ms Caddick would allegedly take these huge sums of money from investors and make them think that she was putting them into portfolios when she was really spending it on herself on things like expensive clothing, jewellery and property and, and holidays and things like that. Yeah, crazy, crazy stuff. I mean, the inquest got off to a pretty dramatic start this week because it was focusing on the mystery of Melissa Caddick's foot. What did the inquest hear about that? Yeah, so this is one of the major questions. This decomposing foot washed up in a sneaker on a beach on the New South Wales south coast. It was three months after Melissa Caddick disappeared. And the inquest heard on its opening day this big opening address where the counsel assisting one of the lawyers was going through some of the expert evidence we're going to hear. And some of the experts talked about what was found on the sneaker. They found about 250 goose barnacles on this shoe and they said they were newly settled. So science comes in here and we've heard that the experts have determined that given the growth and the age of these barnacles, they thought it was pretty likely that Melissa Caddick's shoe had only spent about a week in the water, no less than two or three days, and it was uh, floating on the ocean surface before washing up in that, uh, that beach. Now, the authors of that expert report had discussed the possibility of of a shark being involved here. In other words, the shark might have eaten the remains. They talked about, as well, the subsequent regurgitation being a theory about why Melissa Caddick's foot and shoe might have appeared to only spend a short amount of time in the water when it was actually three months between when she went missing and when that foot was discovered on the beach. Right, so the shark could have eaten it and then regurgitated it later. That's interesting. What about the foot amputation theory? Because that's also wild story. Yeah, this is essentially a, a big conspiracy theory. Some people believe that Melissa Caddick might not actually be dead and she could have staged her disappearance by cutting off her own foot. Now, this inquest has heard that another expert report discussed that possibility. They went to a surgeon and they asked him about the possibility of whether that was even an option. And that surgeon has said that if someone wasn't medically trained and tried to do that, it would result in pretty significant blood loss and create a really high risk of infection and sepsis and septic shock. There would be a need for a really strong medication. And it would also mean, obviously, you'd need a prosthetic foot. So any specialist the court heard who was having a consultation of somebody who had a wound like that would look at it and immediately start to ask questions. So the coroner's court has been told based on that expert report, they might find that it's highly unlikely that this theory of foot amputation uh, was a way for Melissa Caddick to stage her own disappearance. Right. There's also been a big focus on Melissa Caddick's husband. What's the inquest heard about him? So Anthony Coletti is Melissa Caddick's husband and he hasn't been charged with anything over either her disappearance or her financial dealings. But the court has heard police really early on in this investigation thought his behaviour was pretty unusual. Some of them described him as being evasive and vague and giving inconsistent stories when he spoke spoke to police. Now, we've heard that he didn't report Melissa Caddick missing until 30 hours after he claimed he last saw her back in 2020. And today we actually saw a a recorded interview where Anthony Coletti was speaking to police about two weeks after she disappeared. And he told a detective that he thought his wife might even be somewhere in like a budget hotel or something like that. He said she could have a fat wad of cash stashed under the bed for all I know. 
He was asked in that interview why he thought she hadn't even contacted him and had just disappeared. And he told the police, because there's no need to, he said, do you think she wants to deal with the shitstorm that I'm dealing with? So Anthony Colletti's behaviour in the early stages of this investigation is coming under some pretty close scrutiny. Do the police suspect that Melissa Caddick could have been murdered? No, so that's been one of the questions that uh, two of the police witnesses so far have been asked, and both of them have said that while his behaviour was pretty unusual, they thought that uh, it perhaps she had maybe self-harmed or maybe that she was even hiding because she, she knew that she was in trouble and ASIC was closing in. There was this pending prosecution. So some police believed that Anthony Coletti knew more than he was letting on, and one of the, uh, one of the witnesses today said he even thought that she might be hiding out in their house and that Anthony Coletti might have been helping her go to ground. Right, okay. We've got 30 seconds left, Jamie. Who else is expected to testify at this inquest? Well, one of the big ones is going to be Anthony Coletti himself. He's going to give evidence later this month. And uh, this week is mostly about police witnesses, but we're also going to hear from some of those experts I mentioned. So there'll be a forensic psychiatrist who might talk about any conditions that Melissa Caddick might have had, and also an oceanographer who's probably going to talk about that foot issue and then ocean currents and how the foot ended up on the beach so far away from Sydney where she lived. Oh, crazy story. No doubt a heap of interest, so we're going to keep checking in. ABC court reporter Jamie McKinnell, thanks so much for your time. Thanks. Hack on Triple J. Big thanks again to ABC Court reporter Jamie McKinnell. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.